The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. We've got a couple of people on today's show. We're going to talk to Maxim Bihar from Eco and M3 later on. But first of all, uh, we have someone from the world of politics making his Echo Chamber debut. Um, it's David Singleton. David, I'm going to let you introduce your, yourself and your various jobs because... Every time I meet you, you seem to have added a new, a new magazine to your kind of empire. Yeah, it's just the, um, just the three at the moment. So I'm, I'm David Singleton. I'm editor of Total Politics and Public Affairs News. And uh, I also work on the House magazine, um, Dodds Communications. Right. So, you know, Echo Chamber listeners, I'm sure, are all keenly aware that this is actually a reunion because mm. we, used to, um, we used to work together at Haymarket in the, in the PR week. Glory years. Indeed, glory years. <laughs> so how long have you been kind of, well, I mean, you were already covering politics then, but sort of focusing solely on the world of politics. How many years has it been now? Blimey, I think it must be, it's getting on for four, it's around four or five years, I think, since I, since I left um, since I left PR Week to, yeah. um, to edit Public Affairs News. And then I was on um, Politics Home, first of all, yeah. moved across since then. So yeah, it's um, it's been a good few years, but I've kept... Um, Covering the lobbying industry, yeah. Since then, so getting on for a, must be approaching a decade of um, yeah. of, of lobbying, uh, lobbying reporting experience. Cool. Well, we'll talk about that, but obviously, there's been a lot happening, um, UK politics and global politics. And as we were just discussing before the show, um, you could say it's the best time to be a political journalist. Really, it probably depends how much. Um, how much sleep you like to have so it's certainly the um it's certainly the busiest time it you know it's it's calmed down a little bit slightly but it's been you know it's been absolutely crazy for the for the last year ever since you know the general election we then mm-hmm. had a labor leadership election we've had the eu referendum oh yeah um, yeah you know and and the labor party is just a um a constant source of uh, sort of backstabbing and um process stories Right, and uh, yeah. and then obviously we've we've got Brexit. Isn't that the, the elite time. media just missing the message on Labour? Because they're you know they're trying to they're trying to bring in a new type of politics, aren't they? Kinder <laughs> and fairer, gentler. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, uh, the, uh, Corbyn's team have pretty much given up on the uh, the right wing media. I I, I understand, and uh, right. it's okay. pr- probably quite easy to see why. But even the the so called you know centrist and left wing media, they they. They're not necessarily being that kind to, to Labour either, right? <laughs> no, well, well, they're not being kind. Um, mm. th- I suppose the question is, are, are they being fair? Right. Um, yeah. You know, it's a moot point as to whether you should be, should you be kind to to a leader who's who's trailing so, so badly in the polls. You know, who's um, who all the all the indications are that he's going to lose. Yeah. Lose the next election for the Labour Party, and um, not even not even a majority of Labour. Supporters back Corbyn, I think the last poll showed. So really? um, yeah. it's hardly surprising if he gets a rough ride in the media, surely. Not at all, no. But um, I've seen a lot of stuff uh, in terms of Corbynistas, mm. if, if that's what they're still called, um, where they don't so much blame the results of what's happened, i.e., losing you know the Copeland by-election, um, but they seem to hold the media responsible for not you know accurately. 
um, reporting Jeremy's message, and, and, and that's part of the reason, um, yeah. which strikes me as a little disingenuous. But. Yeah, I mean, over the years, sort of losing politicians have always yeah. hit out on the media, haven't they? And um, I, mean, I mean, obviously, you know, Corbyn has a different agenda to um, to a lot of the opinion formers in the in, in the in the press and you know in the sort of yeah. the Murdoch papers and um, the Mail and the and the Sun. They just they're not you know they don't support him. There's no there's no question about that. They don't they don't believe in his plan. Um, but you know, just because you don't believe in his plan doesn't doesn't mean you can't give him fair coverage. Yeah, f- from a news perspective. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm not, not going to pretend that Corbyn's sort of had an easy ride from the from the papers. He hasn't. Yeah. Um, you mentioned not even a majority of Labour members support mm. him, but he does seem to derive a, a, a large part of his support from this group called Momentum. Mm-hmm. And I mean, how does that work exactly? Because it, you know, it doesn't seem like Labour is is doing especially well in terms of opinion polls or even as we saw in the by-election, and yet he's he's returned, you know, he's, he won the mm. election comfortably and he saw off a leadership challenge. Yeah, well, I mean, it's he won a, leadership, a Labour Party leadership election uh, mm. you know, the, among Labour members. is obviously very different to, to a general election. Um, mm. But, you know, Corbyn's strength is he's, he's great at whipping up the base, and I think he's, he, he's probably happiest, he's probably most comfortable when he's... Um, when he's sort of fighting um, among his own side to, to mm-hmm. get his um, point of view across, that's when he that's when he often comes into his own. Um, the the problem, the recent problem for the Labour Party has been their stance on Brexit, where Corbyn he really failed to come up with a, a stance that that satisfied you know a good a good chunk of you know his own MPs, let alone the. Let alone the members, um, mm. and I think his his ratings within the party have gone, you know, they've gone down with Brexit, and they weren't great to start with. Yeah. Um, what's he like to cover? He's well. He's not. He's not. He's not a fan of the media, uh, <laughs> so, right. as we've as we've discussed. Yeah. So that makes it interesting. But um, yeah, well, I I am. Um, well, I first dealt with him when I met him when I interviewed him, just as the first Labour leadership election was going on, and. Um, he was a you know he's a very nice chap a very genuine guy and um you know great to be in his company um he makes he makes for interesting copy because he doesn't uh he doesn't toe the line he doesn't really speak in sound bites you know right. you know he doesn't he doesn't present the problems that previous labor leaders i guess I'm thinking particularly Ed Miliband have done where mm. they um where they can be quite quite stilted and just want to sort of stick to their soundbite and get it out you know at least with Corbyn he does kind of speak off the cuff a bit and he doesn't always do what you might expect him to do mm. so that makes him interesting and fun to report mm-hmm. is that still the case you know into mm. now that we're kind of into the sort of what is it two years since he's no 18 months when did he yeah, it was almost almost two years, right? It's uh, yeah, be coming up to yeah. two years in the summer, won't it? I think. Yeah, is that still the case? Is he still? I think I saw a profile of him in the New Yorker where they they focused a lot on on his allotment <laughs> and his jam making. Oh, re- oh yeah, yeah. These would seem to be the two did main they, themes of his. Uh, did they mention his cat as well? I don't recall the cat. I can't remember what his cat's called. I now. don't want to, you know, I don't want to besmirch the New Yorker's reputation. Right. 
I, I'm sure they covered all bases, <laughs> um, and I'm sure the cat was was part of their research. But I don't recall the cat. But yeah, did, yeah. Well, is he, he has... still a still source of color? Or is he just or is it all drained away? Well, he has smartened up his act. Right. Um, you know, when he, which is probably a good idea, because when he first started doing PMQs, he looked he looked quite scruffy. You know, he didn't sort of, <laughs> you know, he he didn't uh, conform to the. Uh, you know what yeah. David Cameron expected of him. David Cameron famously said that his, his mother would have told him to tuck his shirt in and put on a smart tie or something like that. And uh, and I think Corbyn actually <laughs> took that advice. And uh, and and he has you know in in some ways he has been a more conventional politician. You know in, in the way he he dresses, he approaches PMQs, he behaves in the chamber, and that sort of stuff. Um, but I think I think Corbyn's spinners believe that his uh, his USP is his authenticity. Right. So isn't and that supposed to be his yeah, his whole yeah. thing? Yeah, he, yeah. He can be scruffy and this is he's he's being real, he's not Tony Blair or Yeah, well this but this is this is the nub of the problem for yeah. for Corbyn's communications operation, I think, that you know, his strength is that he's he's authentic, he's seen to be authentic and he and he speaks his mind. Um but, you know, he has there are a number of um problems that polling show up as well you know lack of patriotism or sort of mm. stuff like that and um the problem for the corbyn team is how to address one without addressing the other so mm-hmm. you know they they recognize there's a, a patriotism deficit as they call it but mm. um it's very hard to do anything about it without eroding his uh authenticity rating so you know corbyn could go out and sort of say you know i, I want to sort of Support the uh, Royal Yacht Britannia, which I think uh, you know, they actually, which actually, I understand, was kind of talked about. Yeah, you know, right, okay. doing stuff like that, you know, and then people might, on the one hand, will go, "Oh, that's you know, it's pretty yeah. patriotic," and but yeah, you know, at the same time, they'll go, "It's really inauthentic." Um, yeah. So that's that's the that's the challenge for Corbyn, isn't it? You know, how yeah. to kind of how can he increase his negatives without eroding the the few positives that he's got. And what do you make of his comms operation? I mean, obviously, he's famously led by Seamus Milne, yeah. or formerly of, of The Guardian. Mm-hmm. Um, fairly left-wing sort of character. Yeah. And how, do you, how do you view their comms operation compared to Labour comms operations of years gone past, which have been, you know, in some some cases, extremely sophisticated? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's fair to say there's, there's not quite the, the message discipline that there was. Mm. Um, you know they're not. You don't. You don't get the uh, sort of responses. I mean, just on a sort of operational front, you you know they're often beaten by the Lib Dems to sort of to a comment on on stuff. So say mm. say Theresa May does or says something potentially um, damaging, damaging or controversial. Um, you know, Labour Labour on often aren't that quick, sort of piling in on it, and often they never do. Um, there's been disgruntlement within Labour that they haven't really seized on the NHS when there has been sort mm-hmm. of bad news about the state of the NHS. Yeah, you know, back in uh, Ed Miliband's day and certainly Blair's day, I think you know they'd be piling on the airwaves trying to you know trying to seize on that and uh, weaponize the NHS, as Ed Miliband may or may not have once said. Mm-hmm. Um, Corbyn is quite quite slow to do that. They're not they're not as sort of um, they don't seem to be as speedy when it comes to reacting to the uh, sort of uh, the breaking issues of the day, mm. um, but I, but I guess they've got their own uh, plans that they want to they want to push out at some stage. Although we're not we're not really quite clear what they are. Well, there doesn't seem to be much opposition 
to to the, the, the Brexit plans as as put forth yeah. by by Theresa May and the Conservative Party. I mean, I think yeah, Jeremy Corbyn's whipped his you know his MCs to sorry his MPs his MCs. We'll talk about That'd MCs <laughs> later on. Um, no, he's whipped his MPs to to uh, to support um, yeah. the government on the Article Fifty vote. Um, which yeah, which was a slightly strange position. I think yeah, Brexit is the big issue in in UK politics. It, you know, yeah, it, it really is, and um, it's a critical issue for Labour. And you've now got a situation where the the Tories have pretty much stolen UKIP's clothes on this and said we are the uh, we're the party of the leavers. You know, yeah, all fifty two percent of you, you know, we we represent you. The Lib Dems have said we represent the Remainers. Yeah. And Labour have said, well, we kind of want to represent you both. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. And it's not a, it's just not a strong offer. You know, the yeah. Labour, Labour, what Labour could have done is sort of set a narrative going, you know, weeks, weeks earlier, weeks before the Article 50 vote saying this is what we want yeah. Theresa May to sign up to. And if she does, then she'll get our support. If she doesn't, she won't. Um, mm. But it was never... It was never made clear by the Labour spin team, Labour Labour MPs, the shadow cabinet, what they wanted. You know, they don't want a hard Brexit, but how? You know, what do they want? It was never made clear. And then mm. when 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 the crunch came, you know, Corbyn just told his MPs to vote for it anyway. Yeah. So let's rewind a bit because we actually dived straight into Labour mm. and got um, got quite stuck into discussing Jeremy Corbyn. But obviously, you know, all of this really is about is about Brexit. Massive, massive, biggest political shock, I guess, to the British system for, I mean, who knows how long, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so sure. what is the mood in Westminster like now? Well, I guess it depends which MPs you're talking to. Mm. Um, <laughs> if you're talking to Labour MPs, it's probably the understatement of the, the century to say that there's a few of them that are quite depressed. Mm. Um so we've already seen two Labour MPs throwing in the towel, Tristram Hunt mm-hmm. and um, the MP for Copeland, Andy Reid. Right. Well done. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I got on. Um, Don't worry. So, yeah, yeah. And um, so, yeah. So, the, yeah. And who might be next? You know, pe- yeah, there's talk of kind of people like Tom Blenkinsop, maybe as a Labour MP who's very disgruntled. Will really? He, you know, Are you breaking will, news here? Could he throw in the towel? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not. No, I just uh, <laughs> idle, uh, idle rumor and okay. rumor and gossip. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, but the, you know, I, th- I think he, I think uh, you know, Mr. Blenkinsop would certainly um, say on the record that he's not entirely happy with the direction of the uh, Labour Party's leadership, as are as are many. So you know, there's lots of Labour MPs, and you know, potentially three years to go to to a general election, and you know, what are they going to do? So they're kind of. There are there are plenty of depressed mm-hmm. Labour MPs around Westminster. Mm. Um, yeah, some of them are, and, and many of them are, are, are Remainers. You know, people in Remain constituencies. Yeah, um, where, where Corbyn has um, Corbyn has got, has gone against them. So, mm. so and and great. the Tories. I mean, you know, it's, uh, I, I assume the the obviously the the Leave wing of the Tories is happy, but there's a, there's a substantial Remain wing in the Conservative Party as well. Yeah, they're large. They're largely quite content, from what I can gather. You've got, you know, I mean, Ken Clark is the sort of mm. is leading the rebellion. Really, it's people like Anna Soubry who you know, 
who are not at all happy. But um, on the whole, Re- Remain MPs are sort of they, they're certainly giving they're giving the PM the benefit of the doubt. They they think she's they think she's doing a pretty good job. And you know they all at the end of the day they all they all know they're going to keep their seats in the mm. in the next election. You know they just look at the polls, right? And um, the polls say well. You know your seat's safe, and mm-hmm. as long as that's the case, you know you, nine times out of ten, you, you're going to be pretty happy unless there's a particular, particular problem that you've got. Mm. And you know, given that she's not done much else apart from Brexit, there's not really that many other things for mm. Tory MPs to get upset about. What do you make of Theresa May's performance from a communications perspective so far? I mean, there was mm. there was various sound bites. Was you know, Brexit means Brexit, and I think my favourite, red, white, and blue Brexit, yeah. um, which was illuminating. Uh, but h- how do you <laughs> kind of rate her, uh, her her communications performance? I mean, she's okay, isn't she? I, I mm. sort of wouldn't go any any further than that. She's not sort of she's not in the same ballpark as Cameron mm. or Blair. You know, she's a bit yeah, she's a bit more of a Gordon Brown, really. I mean, you know. Gosh. I mean, <laughs> yeah. well, that's perhaps that's a perhaps that a, that's a bit harsh. <laughs> well, that's faint praise. But, but yeah. um, you know, and that's she. She's not desperately keen to, to to go out and do big speeches and and talk to the media. Um, yeah. And she doesn't. And, and number ten don't don't particularly want her to. You know, the right. sort of the uh, the current strategy is pretty much to sort of. Um, not to not to overfeed the beast, yeah, and uh, you know just to sort of to use Teresa now and again. You know she's um, she she can be solid. I think you know she doesn't sort of um, she doesn't mess up very much, mm. um, but neither is she particularly exciting. But mm-hmm. you know in the kind of in these turbulent political times, is that um, enough? <laughs> well, it's enough at the moment, isn't it? Because because yeah. um, there's not much opposition, and uh, right. you know, and the press are on her side. So yeah. you know, name me a you know, name me a newspaper or a TV outlet that's you know consistently laid into the PM over the last few yeah. weeks. There isn't one, so you know the the strategy at the moment of sort of keeping keeping their head down, not kind of not packing the the grid with like too much stuff. Yeah, um, that's what they're doing, and in a way, why not? Because why why do they need to do anything else? They've they've basically got the media on side. Yeah, um, you know the danger is that you kind of. You can go out. If you saw it in the in the Copeland by-election, Theresa May didn't do much all week. This was during half term. Then she went out to Copeland. Yeah. And she um she went to school, met some kids, and then um, then she sort of did a quick she a quick sort of Q and A with uh, ITV News, I think, on the way out of the school. I think it was. And um, she was only there for a few hours. But what emerged from that was pictures of Theresa May pulling strange faces at school kids in a classroom. Really. You yeah. sort of grimacing. Yeah. Oh right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, just, just snappers being cheeky that they, you know, yeah, sure. They've got photos of her looking very strange, mm. and um, and then the other, the the more sort of significant story was Theresa May saying four times that she wouldn't, uh, I think she wouldn't confirm whether you know a local hospital would be um, would be closed or not, something like that, you know, and um, so she might as well have not bothered. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I suppose it, you know, it's, that's all well and good as far as her kind of. I suppose the short-term political imperatives are concerned, but there is a whole country out there that probably wants more information about what Brexit might mean. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, there is, there's still a kind of vacuum of information. Yeah, there is. I mean, I, I, 
you know, and and they will say, and they do say, they don't want to. Right. Government doesn't want to show their hand. You know, mm-hmm. you, you don't go into a, you don't go into negotiation, kind of um, showing the other side what you what you want to get or whatever whatever metaphor it is they they, they choose to use. Yeah. Um, but that's what they say at the moment. But you know, obviously, as you imply, you can't you know you can't hold that line forever. And um, mm. yeah, she will have to start. She will have to start explaining more what 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 she's doing, and you know whether this really isn't the hard Brexit that some people claim it is. Do, do they still... Are they still um, suggesting that it's not a hard Brexit or have they accepted that formulation, the, the Tories this is? Uh, well, or at least Theresa May's team. Well, I don't think Number 10 would would ever sort of sign right. up to that phrase, mm. no. Okay. Um, but they, they prefer red, white and blue Brexit. Yeah, I they? think they're still sticking with that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've seen some of these... You mentioned um, Ken Clark. We saw John Major... <laughs> Mm. Some of these Tory grandees coming out, you know, speaking up for, I suppose, a, a different era yeah. of, uh, of of um, of discourse in a way, but also a kind of one nation uh, Tory party um, sort of stance. Is that just a thing of the past now? Are, th- are those kinds of people not taken seriously anymore? Well, it, it, it feels like it, doesn't it? You know, you've mm. got a situation where the big beasts of the past are being, um, you know, being largely attacked by the by the Tory party. I mean that that wing of the the party has quietened down. Will it be back? Mm. Quite quite probably, but um yeah, I I think that it does seem like the Brexiteers are in in ascendance mm. at the moment. Um yeah. You know, a lot of the stuff that you, know, you you've got a strange situation where you I mean you've got Heseltine, Major and Blair essentially all sort of saying similar stuff and um mm. You know, none of those three big beasts are in, in, in tune with the leadership of either Labour or the Tories. Yeah. What did you make of Tony Blair's intervention um, recently? He made a big speech, yeah. said, you know, the will of the people has to be respected. He was talking about the Remainers, not the two million that marched against the Iraq war. As right. Far as I can yeah. Tell. But yeah. Um, <laughs> what did you make of that? Because uh, I think Labour blamed, it, yeah. blamed him for the Copeland by-election loss. Whereas yeah. other people were saying, well, look at this. This is another reminder of, you know, the, the, the greatest political talent of our generation, still yeah. the best communicator. I thought, well, I thought he was, I thought he was very good. Um, mm. You know, I, you know, I think Blair's very, very impressive. Um, it was pretty obvious what, what charges were going to be leveled at him. Um, you know, to me, it, you know, he see he was making the argument that you know things can change, and in, and if Brexit turns out to be a complete disaster in two years' time, then people should have the right to say, well, you know, maybe maybe we can do something a bit different. Maybe maybe we can't go ahead with it after all. Mm. You know, if they if they choose. I mean, he started out his speech by saying he accepted. He accepted the result. Um, mm. and then, pre- predictably, everybody says he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't accept the result. Um, but I, I don't buy. I certainly don't buy the. Um, yeah, the the idea that Labour lost the Copeland by election because of because of an intervention <laughs> was, uh, by was, Blair. Like people yeah. go, people were going to go out and vote for Corbyn, but then uh, yeah, then Blair then Blair yeah. spoke up and they thought actually, do you know what? I'm not going to. Yeah. I'm not going to vote for Corbyn because Blair spoke out. Yeah, there were um, several excuses put forward though, from what I could tell. I think yes. Blair was one of them. Yeah, there was Blair. There was the weather. There was uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mandelson and Blair. They were sort of lumped together. There was yeah. uh, the unique circumstances of, uh, of right. the constituency. Yeah, every constituency is unique, surely. Mm. Um, but in terms of Blair's strategy, I mean, it was 
pretty clever because it was in half term. There was no news knocking around. I think it was a <laughs> Thursday. I think it was a Thursday to the speech on. I might be wrong. It might have been a Friday. It was, it was but, either um, Thursday or Friday. I remember Yeah, that. it was at the end yeah. of the week, wasn't it? But there was yeah. nothing else happening. Right. Um, and so the speech got loads of attention on the day. And then... Um, then it was widely followed up in the, in the papers yeah. the next day, and uh, you know it set the agenda because you know cause there was nothing this, else happening. You know because Theresa May had taken the decision not to do anything herself, so Blair filled the void. Is this him preparing for a re-entry into the uh, into the ring, or or is he just you know? Yeah, I think so. I think he is yeah. preparing to. Well, he's not preparing to re-enter Westminster politics, right. but um, yeah. he is. Uh, yeah, he is up to something, isn't he? He wants um, a more active voice. Do you think? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think he wants to be. Well, I assume there are lots of people telling him he needs to be. He needs to get back in and save the party from Corbyn, right? You, you can imagine there's the Mandelsons mm, and so on. Well, I, I don't know. I think I think a lot of people, a lot of Blair supporters, are smart enough to realise how mm. toxic he is. Oh, okay. Um, right. So uh, you know, no one's really stupid enough to suggest that that Blair could could sort of go in and and save the day because mm. just because of you know the the composition of the party at the moment and Blair's and and popularity but mm. um it, it's difficult to see what what role he could play i mean there's still a yeah. lot of people that you know that are admire him but um but it's yeah. very it's very very difficult to to utilize him at the moment yeah and i mean he still has his business as well right that's he's well. He's he's not doing. No, he's not doing so much of that. I think. Okay. Yeah, I can't remember. He's wound, He's wound down oh. some of his some of his business stuff, and he's coming back into politics. But I mean, there's nobody. You know, he's really taking up the mantle for uh, for remain, isn't he? Because because uh, Corbyn's certainly not doing it, and there's not many. There's not really anybody else. So he's it's Roland Rudd. Roland Rudd. Yes. Yeah. Who's, he's who's the um, sister is the Finsbury the Finsbury yeah. chief. Yeah. Well, he he yeah Roland. Um, played a big role with was it Britain for Europe? There was a yes. there was a group, and he was very involved in that. Of course, what's interesting is his sister is the Home Secretary. Yeah, so that's that, right. That'd be an interesting um, family mm. reunion. They <laughs> um, yeah. So we've talked about Labour. We've got to talk about Nigel Farage. Mm. I'm sure that's one of your favourite topics. Oh yeah, um, big fan. So tell me, is he the is he the the guy that has, you know, revolutionised? political communication in the UK and <laughs> delivered the country back to the will of the people or is he just a you know a brazen opportunist who uh, whose time is gone now uh, <laughs> well uh, given the fact that that um, you know UKIP still only have one MP um, mm. yeah I mean a lot of people on the leave campaign will say and do say that they won despite of Nigel Farage right. not because of him okay. you know and and the the Leave campaign really did sort of splinter into two mm-hmm. two camps towards the end, and you had the kind of the Faragist wing saying that you we need to sort of go in go on immigration, mm. and um, you know the sort of more moderate wing that um, didn't think that was a great idea because mm. you know because you then um, you open yourself up to accusations of racism and all that sort of stuff. Um, so there's I mean there's no there's certainly no evidence that Farage won the. Won the referendum, won the Brexit referendum, um, well, which as he'd like to yeah, suggest yeah. there is. <laughs> yeah, he, pretty... he might have a different view of that. <laughs> <laughs> I think Boris and Gove would, uh, you know, would beg to oh. differ, as would the you know the official Vote Leave campaign, which you know rather than the Leave.eu campaign that Farage is involved with. Mm. Um, but you know, you look at the state of UKIP now, and um, 
you know, I suppose by comparison with, with what's happened to it since he left, you know, he looks like he was pretty effective. Mm. Yeah, and he, he was obviously a, a good a good leader for UKIP, but let's not let's not pretend that you know they they did anything more than you know get get one MP. Yeah, yeah, quite true. Um, last but not least, the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel bad getting to them last, but on UKIP we haven't we, you haven't mentioned uh, Paul Nuttall's terrible performance in oh, yeah. Stoke and why that was. Yeah, and, well, um, well, yeah, he's a serial fantasist, yeah, as he's yeah. often described these days. <laughs> tell <laughs> us, tell us about Paul Nuttall and his various claims to fame. Exactly. So, uh, well, I've I've lost count of them. There's so many, but um, <laughs> the most recent one was. Um, to do with Hills Ross, and he, he weirdly had something on his website saying that he had close friends who'd um, died in the Hillsborough tragedy. Um, and then then when he's asked about it on, on the radio, he said, well, no, friends, but not close friends. And so, so it's not funny. Really, why, why was that on the website? It's really not very clear. And then he sort of ungallantly threw a press officer under the bus, as he has done, mm. you know, two or three times before. Um, so yeah, so he's sort of got this reputation as a kind of Jeffrey Archer sort of figure who just goes around lying about stuff. Um, but so that was terrible. I mean, it's it would be interesting to you know, Labour managed to um, beat beat Nuttall in Stoke after yeah. after a terrible campaign. You know, it, in a way, you do wonder if um, if all that stuff hadn't happened and and Nuttall had been a strong candidate, would Labour have? lost Stoke. I mean, we don't yeah. know, but, you know, Labour's... Labour won one by-election and lost one last week. Well, and the held, one they won was they held against, one, right? Well, yeah, they held it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, quite right. Um, against a very weak Nuttall. You know, he'd been going around beforehand. Their comm strategy was very clear. Let's, you know, paint the Labour Party as kind of soft, southern sort of uh, poshos, basically, who don't mm. don't understand, you know, don't care about immigration and don't Mm-hmm. Understand the concerns of the real, the real working man because they're all too busy, you know, sort of um, knocking back Chianti at their uh, Islington mm. dinner parties. Yeah. Um, so and it was pretty, yeah, pretty obvious what he was trying to do, and mm-hmm. um, pretty interesting that people just didn't buy it really. Yeah, and you think they didn't buy it because of him? Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's probably it was probably the messenger rather than the message. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think he was probably tapping into a, a sort of. An existing concern about the state of the Labour Party, um, yeah. but yeah, people just didn't didn't believe that he was the person to. It's interesting that him. UKIP, as you said, they've never they've never won. I mean, they have one MP, but that's Douglas Carswell, right? Yeah, who was already an MP for the Conservatives for several terms. Yeah, he was. Yeah, right. So they've never kind of really won a, a, a yeah. parliamentary seat. Yeah, I mean, Carswell called that by-election when he was a Tory MP. Right, stood as a stood as a UKIPper and, um, and then and then win it on those terms, yeah. Yeah. And then he was re-elected in the general. Right. Um, yeah, but it is interesting yeah, that right. they've never... So despite your best efforts, we have to talk about the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> um, so as you said, they, they've kind of styled themselves mm. as the party of Remain. Has, how, you know, they've kind of seen some tough times in recent years, right, ever since their role in the coalition government. Yeah. Um, how are they doing? Is, there, is their message getting through? Um, I think it is. I think it is. Um, I don't know. It's it's difficult for Lib Dems. They don't get much airtime these days. It's you know, it's almost like what's the point of them? Why why would you speak to them? Um, I guess you know when it's a a big Brexit issue, 
Nick Clegg gets a bit of airtime. Mm. You don't see much of Tim Farron. Um, yeah, you know, That's and they true. haven't, and and they're really a sort of a two, a two-figure party really these days. You know, I'm sure if you went up to the average person on the street, they, well, they probably wouldn't be able to name any of them. They might be able to name Nick Clegg. Mm. And, and possibly Tim Farron. Um, no, I don't think they'd name Tim Farron. Probably really. not. Probably not. Yeah. But then, you know, beyond that, I mean, there's, they're just... There's no one... I mean, there's only eight of them all together, I think, in, in Parliament. Um, but what they have got is a clear a clear message, and it won them... It won them Richmond. They managed to... Mm-hmm. They managed to um, elbow Zach Goldsmith out of the Commons, which is, you know... Thank God. Which is some achievement. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, the bad news for the Lib Dems is that uh, not every... Seat in England yeah. has the same composition of, as uh, as Richmond, leaf, leafy Richmond. What are you yeah. trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's quite well off there. Apparently, yeah, apparently, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But as you said, there's only eight of them mm. in Parliament, so limited influence. Um, I mean, it looks like you know for the Tories, it's it's a great set of circumstances. Do you see them calling an early general election? It's. It, I mean, who knows? Um, it's. They they claim no. Um, in a way, why would you? you? You think you know. You don't need to as long as you're, um, you know, with with the Labour Party in in the state it's in. Mm. Um, you might as well just kind of go on until it looks like that situation might change, and then, and then go for it. But you never know. I mean, Gordon Brown, famously, dithered over whether to call a general election or not. I think oh, yeah. it was. Um, <laughs> When was it? Maybe it was 2007. And if he had, you know, and if he had called it when he did, he probably would have won. And then um, mm. he would have been in power till 2012, 2013. Um, Gosh, that's, but, a, that's uh, a great what if. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if he didn't. So that and that's, you know, because due to sort of unforeseen circumstances, you know, everything went against him. Um, but I mean, is that really going to happen to Theresa May? Are we going to be in a situation where Corbyn's, you know, leading the polls and, you know, I, I'd be surprised. I think she's naturally quite a cautious politician. Mm. Um, so I think her instinct would be not to, um, you know, and she'll probably carry on, carry on what she's doing until, you know, until there's a, a real suggestion that it's, you know, it might be the start of a slippery slope and it, things might get a bit precarious. Then you call one then. There's no mm-hmm. point doing it now. Um, she clearly doesn't face much opposition within um, the Conservative Party. Mm. You, you, you can't say the same about Jeremy Corbyn, obviously. Do you see um, any contenders kind of positioning themselves or jockeying uh, to succeed him? Yes, but um, <clears throat> so you've got so the Corbynites have got their people in place, so um, they like Rebecca Long-Bailey, mm-hmm. possibly Angela Rayner. They're the two the two names that are sort of being being mentioned, John McDonnell is said to be a big fan of um, Rebecca Long Bailey. Mm. Uh, we're not really very sure that she actually fancies the job herself, which is a bit of a bit of a problem. Um, but you know, should Corbyn choose to go, and should they manage to get a, get the right rule change through, which you know, which paves the way for a, a left wing successor, then then they're the two sort of mm. people that are being groomed by the Corbynites. Um, then you know, then then you've got people like the sort of more moderate wing of the party would like to see someone like Dan Jarvis mm. or Keir Starmer. Okay. Um, Keir right. Starmer is in the shadow cabinet, so you know he's sort of mm. he's potentially um, in the race because he's not been defined as a uh, 
as a, as a plotter or an anti-Corbynite. Mm. Um, and then Clive Lewis is the other very interesting one to watch. Yeah, he's um, apparently set up a website already, or not. Well, yes, yeah, really weirdly, there was, um, I think it was last year, there was four websites registered yeah. in various... I mean, you know, if you're messing around on WordPress or whatever, it's easy. Just, yeah, it's easy it just to happens, do. doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we, no, well, his... The briefing, the, the suggestion is that uh, it was a sort of nefarious act by a, uh, mm. by an enemy within, you know, who wanted oh, wow. to sort of frame him. And Tony Blair, maybe. Can we, yeah. can we blame him for that? <laughs> it's got to be, yeah. Um, so that's all. Yeah, that's all a bit, um, all a bit strange. But it, I mean, it would be, you know, these things are quite traceable, aren't they? So if if Clive Lewis did set up four websites last year. As soon as he was promoted into the shadow cabinet, then it would be a rather mm. naive act. Yeah, why would you do it? But then, if it was, but then if someone else did it, it's pretty, um, pretty malicious. So, yeah, yeah, interesting one. Um, so you've been, as you mentioned um, at the beginning, you, you've covered the lobbying industry now for a decade, mm. um, and despite that, you, uh, despite the, the plethora here. of lunches, yeah, you don't appear to have put on any weight, which is quite impressive. <laughs> um, unlike many in the lobbying industry. Uh, but you getting at? what do you make of the lobbying industry post the Brexit decision? Because my conversations with them, um, they've all said it's been absolutely wonderful for business, although, frankly, they've never, ever told me anything's been bad for business. Yeah. Um, so what's your take? Yeah, they don't tend to tend to do that, do <laughs> no, they? Um, they don't. So we're seeing, you know, you're seeing a few agencies building up Brexit units. Mm. Um, yeah. How how real a thing is that? I'm not sure. Um, you know, it's been suggested to me that you, know, you really have a Brexit. It's the same. You have the same people in the office. They've just been sort of rebadged, and you know they do a bit of Brexit stuff alongside alongside other stuff. But the, you know, traditionally, uh, the public affairs industry thrives in uncertain times. You know, it's, yeah. in, it's uncertainty that kind of creates business for lobbying agencies. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, the. From what I what I can tell, there's um, there's a lot of businesses that are that are uncertain and um, you know are looking for public affairs help. So I think mm. um, you know I'm sure it's all overplayed a bit, but I, I don't think it's a I, I don't really think it's going to be a bad thing for um, for the industry. And, mm. um, although it might affect the sort of I mean operations in the EU, I guess. Um, yeah, actually, that's a really good point. No, I I mean I agree with you. I do think um, you're right. Uncertainty always business for the consultancy industry um, raises questions about how they staff their Brussels operations and so on. But mm. actually, one thing we didn't talk about, and I'd like your view on, is how do you view the EU's comms through all of this? Because they've had kind of different people they've been putting forward. I don't know if this is something you've been watching particularly, uh, but you know they've got their yeah. chief negotiator, and then there's yeah. I mean, I've not no. I mean, I've not kind of seen it closely enough to really to yeah. Really, how much say on that? Um, yeah, that's cool. I mean, it is the EU after all. We'll, <laughs> we'll soon be rid of them. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're very we're very Westminster focused. At, um, yeah, quite right. At total politics quite and right and too. pan actually. Yeah, yeah, you're taking back yeah. control. I'm glad to see it. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay. Uh, so, final question on lobbying. Um, Ten years ago, there were a lot of lobbying agencies. Um, mm. I mean, there are still now, but a lot of them seem to have been bought or merged or, you know, consolidated. Do yeah. you still see um, that kind of diversity amongst lobbying firms? Um, are there new firms being launched? 
Um, or <clears throat> do you feel do you feel this is maybe part of the cycle where? Um, yeah. There's, there's less of them around. There, there have been new firms being launched. Uh, so Cameron's former chief of strategy, Amit Gill, launched an agency with uh, Paul Stevenson from Vote Leave. That's that's yep. sort of the interesting one right. to watch recently. Um, you know, just last night I went to do with um, Westminster Policy Institute. That's I don't know if you so yeah. Sean Worth and Nick Faith, and they're okay. you know I think their agency is doing some interesting stuff. You know they kind of they would claim that they've shaken up the scene a little bit. So I think there are there are a few um, interesting players knocking about. Um, yeah. You know, but uh, certainly the industry has changed a bit since when I first started covering it, and you had the real kind of. It was the big agencies, the big beasts were the likes of Weber, Burson yeah. Marstella, Fleischmann, Fishburne, you know, the kind of the big agencies with their uh, public affairs offerings. Are and, they just, um, just less involved now in, in that kind of stuff? Well, they still do it, but I just think that, you know, agencies such as Portland and Hanover have really, mm. um, you know, have really come up. Um, yeah, and, that's true. You know, and you benefit from having good Tory connections as well. Mm. Um and Blue Rubicon are, are interesting at the moment, and um, mm. is that because of Open Road or? Uh, yeah, so mm. so Blue Rubicon bought Open Road, but then mm. then Blue Rubicon themselves, I think, were bought by Taneo. So you know, of course, yeah, Taneo yeah. Blue Rubicon, and mm. um, yeah, and I think if I was to sort of put my neck on the line and say a sort of a top three emerging, I'd say Hanover, Portland, mm. and Taneo Blue Rubicon. Yeah, are kind no. of, I, I'd agree the with big that. three in lobbying. Yeah. Well, you heard it here first. Yeah. There you go. So if you're not in the big three, um, according to David Singleton, then please contact David Singleton and, yeah, and not uh, me. Yeah, send me, <laughs> send me your creative champagne and, uh, yeah, who knows, maybe it'll get revised. Yeah. <laughs> not really. Yeah. I didn't say that. <laughs> next time next time we do our very, very authoritative big three of lobbying. But yes. no, I mean, I I kind of agree with that. Hanover's done done very well with us. Portland, obviously, are, you know, huge now. Yeah. Um, and Taneo Blue Rubicon are, are an interesting firm. So I think we'll probably have to end here. We could go on forever, um, but we'll get you on again because I think this will be fun to uh, to have another chat about politics. Maybe we'll talk cool. about maybe we'll talk about Donald Trump. Or, wow! Uh, or, yeah, it's going to be great. It'll be yeah. great. Yeah, It'll be so great. <laughs> It'll be huge. <laughs> it will. So, David, thanks very much for your time. Thank um, you. Yeah. So. Uh, we're going to have Max and Bihar on uh, in the next part of this show. Um, just want to give a big shout, as always, to our sponsor, March, to our production partner, Marketeers. Um, please do rate and review us on iTunes. And, of course, you can get in touch with us on all of our various channels. Thanks very much. Welcome to the Echo Chamber. This is Arun Sudharman from The Homes Report. And we are very lucky to be joined today by Maxim Behar, who is the CEO and chairman at M3 Communications Group in Bulgaria, uh, and of course, widely known around the global PR industry as the president of the International Communications Consultancy Organization, better known as ECO. Max, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. Hello, Arun. Very nice to be with you in this prominent program. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, Max, you have been doing a lot of traveling around the world for your for your eco duties. I mean, I see you in in. It seems you are speaking at most of the conferences on PR in various countries. Um, 
And I'm curious to know how you are seeing the growth of the global PR industry from your perspective. Uh, I don't call it growth. Mm. I would call it rather change. Mm -hmm. Because in some countries which are more advanced in the social media and in some countries where they do understand the markets, I mean, as general, understand the changes in our business, then there might be growth. But in other countries where people are not so advanced to mm -hmm. change rapidly the way they do their business, the approach to the clients and also to the customers, mm -hmm. then it, it's not necessary to be growth. But mm -hmm. the fact is that nowadays public relations business is the most dynamic business in the world, having in mind that since many, many, many years, more than 100 years since this business exists, there is one change happened about 10 years ago, which never, never, ever happened before. And this is the ownership of media. You remember, Arun, something like 10 years ago, the clients were coming to our offices. They were entering our big conference rooms, sitting down and say, were saying, Mr. PR expert, uh, please help us to get our products to the media mm -hmm. because that was our main business, how to get to the media, how to make it more attractive, more interesting, what would mm -hmm. be our approach to the journalists, uh, how to attract them and this and that. But these days they don't need to do this and we don't need to do this because we own media, mm -hmm. which, which is the first and the most important change of our business happened recently is that from mediators or bridges between media and our clients, now we are more, much more managers or publishers than mediators. Mm -hmm. So that means that in our offices, we should start learning how to manage media, how to make a content, how to, how to put this content in a way that is not controversial, it's honest, it's ethical, and also it's influential. Uh, so this is the really first very important change, the, the changing the ownership of the media. But now the second change is happening these days, and this is the very fast, uh, almost invisible, but existing merge between the three main elements of our public communications business. And this is advertising, digital, and public relations. And there are many, many opinions uh, among experts uh, which of those three businesses will lead the future, the future business, the future uh, merged, already merged business. And I really think that it will be public relations. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now it's interesting that you talked about. That, that you, you talked about it in terms of, of the change. But I wonder, in, in some of the, the less mature public relations markets that, that you and I are both familiar with, is it that much of a change or is this just kind of what they've known since, since public relations started? So perhaps they're more comfortable with this new reality because they haven't had to change. Uh, it is change. It's, it, it's a big change. Sometimes, even very often, the clients don't understand that we operate in different communications environment mm -hmm. because the commercial environment very often is the same. 
And mm. when they approach us and when they negotiate with us, public relations companies or experts, they really prefer that we operate with the same old-fashioned ways and instruments and tools uh, just to invite journalists, to have media breakfast, to start com convincing them how good is the product, how good is the service. But in fact, this is change. Mm. Because even the traditional media, they take their news from the social media. Because social media are much faster, much more independent, which is the, 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 the biggest advantage of them. Uh, and also, I would say, much more influential than the traditional media. Hmm. And it's interesting because it seems to me that these changes require in many public relations markets perhaps a different consideration of the types of skills and the types of talent that work within whether it's public relations agencies or communications departments. How are you seeing that play out? Do you feel like the industry is doing a good job of bringing in different skills? You are absolutely right, Arun, because uh, in our offices, we observe total change of the skills which the staff or the managers should have regarding the new, the new, the new way of doing business. Uh, first of all, we should emphasize very much on the speed uh, and to react in a high speed of a public relations situation or crisis uh, we must be absolutely well prepared. Something which happened 10 years ago in 10 minutes, now we even don't have 10 seconds to, to solve it. And it requires a lot of preparation and a lot of uh, simulation training of different public relations cases which may happen. Mm. And another example, 10, 12 years ago, the clients we're having crisis in the morning, in the morning newspaper. And then usually we had about 10 hours to solve this crisis. Call a press conference, send a press message, meet the client, discuss with. But if we had 10 hours in the past, now we don't have even 10 seconds because once the bad news is online, it might spread in a way that it's beyond, beyond our expectations even. It will go internationally, it will reach the much more countries, it may hurt the international business and plans of the client. Mm -hmm. So the advanced preparation is uh, one of the the, 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 the the most needed requirements which we have in our offices. Secondly, simplicity is something which is very crucial. Now, nowadays, we are overloaded with international news, with different information, social media. Some of this information is fake, even if not a majority of this information might be fake, mm -hmm. depending on the case. So we must create a very simple way to differentiate the most important news, the priorities which we have, in a way that uh, our client uh, feels in a good and secure hands. So having fast or very quick service to them, emphasizing on the priorities of the projects is something which is the base 
of the modern public relations, not talking excellent knowledge, how to create a content, how to create a story, how to make this story really a real one, influential one, uh, but also very interesting and serving the client. Because I know a lot of people are dealing now with the storytelling and in every second forum or summit or conference I go, storytelling is obligatory, is one of the uh, one of the topics, main topics. But at the end of the day, storytelling is nothing else than journalism. Because you are journalists, I, I used to be a journalist for about 20 years. And what we were doing with the newspapers or radio and TV stations, we were creating stories, nice stories, good stories, interesting, catchy. So that's the job of the public relations expert these days. And going back to my vision or point of view that now we should be the masters of the content, it covers really the biggest change we mm. suffer. But it's, it's, it seems like that the kind of skills that are required, you know, it's, it's, there, there are, as you mentioned, there are changes and it, it may not always be that easy to find people who can do all of these things. What is it that you look for when you're hiring new people? Uh, usually I'm training them mm. because uh, the old school PR professionals or experts, uh, I don't think they can, they might be changed very easily. Mm. So the new generation, the generation F, which I call them up to the title of my book a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. uh, the generation F, which comes from Facebook, fear, three letters with F, mm -hmm. and the other one is a four letters word mm -hmm. starting with F, because a lot of young people, they say, we don't care. Mm -hmm. They say, sorry for the language, which is commonly used in the US, they said, fuck off, we don't mm. care, we don't want to live in this world, we would like to live in a another world with uh, different relations, uh, we don't want to be to be approached by fake profiles, by, by fake news, uh, by trolls, <laughs> uh, so the second death was fear, Yeah, uh, because a lot of people experience a lot of fear from the new media environment because they're not used to this. In the past, we used to have one TV channel and one newspaper and that's it. But the generation F, the new generation, which which manages very good uh, with the new environment, uh, I think it's very easy to be, to be trained. And also, in our business, I see a very quick enlargement of the need of professionals in different fields. And usually I say, I can make from a doctor a good PR expert for six months, but I cannot make from a PR expert a doctor. Mm. So that means that I hire doctors or engineers or financial experts and train them in our offices to, to learn how to manage with uh, social media and with the public communications. And it's much easier way than to rely 
sorry to say this, but tend to rely on the university education. Hmm. What I see recently that it's a huge gap between the university education in public relations and marketing uh, and our practice. And this is because the education, it's all over the world, it's a trend all over the world, depends on, on the countries, but still it exists. Uh, education is moving in 20 miles per hour. And in our offices, in the case studies, in practice, we, we are moving with 100 miles per hour. And it's not a problem of the two speeds. The problem is that if they move with 20 miles and we, we are moving with 100 miles, then this gap between us is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. So in any case, if I employ or hire a person graduated marketing or public relations anywhere in the world, I still need to train this person six to eight months in the office to explain the practical approaches and the practical ways to make public relations successful and to make our clients happy. Mm -hmm. And so when you're looking for someone to hire, um, even if you are going to train them, what's the, what's the characteristics of the people that you're looking for? Yeah. It might be weird for you, what I will tell now, but when I make an interview, usually I look at the eyes of the candidates and I have only one and only one request to the candidates and this is sparks in the eyes. Mm. Because if the young man or, or girl have these sparks in the eyes, that means ambitious to make career, ambitious to, 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 to handle the, the business and to, and to be better and better professional, that means that everything might be fixed. Because, you know, Arun, I can make from the amateur professional for six to eight months, but I cannot make from a lazy person a hardworking one. Mm. I cannot make from a, someone who creates intrigues within the team, a team worker. So these are characteristics which very probably cannot be changed. Mm. So for me, it's very, very, of course, English language and some communication skills and this and that, these are the base, which I'm not talking even about. But if I see that a person has a good attitude to the business, which I call sparks in the eyes, and would like to make a successful career, then for me, it's more than enough. Nowadays, you can teach very easily your employees. Mm. That's a great point. And I think it's, it's a useful one for anyone who wants to, uh, to, to have a successful career in this industry should bear in mind. Um, so you have, as you mentioned, Generation F. I mean, it seems to me that when you, when you write the next edition of that book, you can add another four-letter word beginning with F, uh, fake, to that <laughs> list. Um, what do you think the fake news era uh, means for public relations practitioners? It's a very good point because, uh, unfortunately, the, the word fake is circulating uh, in our business much more aggressively in the past one or two years. Mm -hmm. And the reason, first of all, the reason uh, as fake news 
which uh, became much more visible during the U.S. elections last year, but also were existing and still are existing in many countries in the local elections, and they concern mainly politicians and mainly politics. Mm -hmm. um, I think that um, this is a problem for the public relations business mm -hmm. because we must unite ourselves. We must declare to the societies that the professional public relations business is to do it transparently, ethical, um, not to, of course, to take engagement or to take the, uh, the, the full commitment that uh, public relations professionals will never use trolls, will never use nicknames, will never mm. work illegally on Wikipedia, which happens very often, mm -hmm. uh, will never try to influence the society with illegal approaches or approaches which are very, uh, very much uh, on the border of, of legally and illegally. Mm. So this is, this is, by the way, it's extremely important task, uh, again, because public relations experts in the past years started create, creating a content. We are the, the content managers. So if we create content and if we are journalists somehow from a certain point of view, because this is journalism, even to write a, a short Twitter, uh, a short post on Twitter, or even to write a post on your Facebook uh, wall, it's also okay. journalism. So if we say, we, the, especially, and it's very actual for ECO, which we are discussing with our board and our executive committee to launch a code of content, which will make all the real PR professionals to commit themselves that they will stick to the code of content and whatever they write the content, it will be only uh, transparent, it will be only the truth, it will be only the real one. So if we manage to convince our colleagues from the public relations business worldwide, it will be a great step ahead. Hmm. And is this something that you're looking to do um, via ECO? Because it seems like that would be a good vehicle to develop this kind of code of conduct? Uh, we have the code of conduct uh, written by me mm. and to discuss within the executive committee. And mm. I would like to, to put it uh, to the attention of the board very recent, very, very soon. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and also uh, I had a long and extensive talks with my uh, colleague who you know very well from IPRA Bart mm -hmm. Debris is the president of IPRA. Uh, so we agreed both ECO and IPRA that uh, if we have a good base for such a code of conduct or code of content, then we will sign it together. Mm -hmm. uh, ECO and IPRA, I guess that we can cover something like 60-70% of the public relations business all over the world. Mm -hmm. And it sure. will be a good message. But again, Arun, I don't expect that the politicians will say something, will sign something and will promise. Mm. I don't expect that, that, that the media will say, uh, we, will, we will keep the ethical standards or we will uh, write only the, the truth and the reality. Or if they say it's okay and we fully support this. But I think that also it's a, it's a call of the PR business, public relations business also, 
to say a word and to make an international appeal that we should keep the standards of, of honest and ethical business. Mm. And just quickly before we go, um, tell us a little bit about your work at ECO. I think it would be useful perhaps for our listeners to get a better understanding of, of what it is that ECO does and, and, and perhaps what benefits it can bring to agencies that are part of the organization. International Communications Consultancy Organization is a great community, uh, which I'm involved uh, within the executive committee and the board for the past 12 or 13 years. Mm. And I had a privilege and the amazing chance to follow the development of ECO, which nowadays unites 48 countries. Mm-hmm. And 48 countries, we unite the public relations associations with more than 4,000 uh, public relations companies, members of these associations, which means that uh, our voice is stronger and stronger every year. And I think that we really do represent the PR communities uh, all over the world. And it's very worth to whoever, whatever country or organization or public relations agency to join us, even just for the fact to be a member of this big group of experts and professionals. Uh, with the our awards, uh, Eco Global Awards, uh, we gather more and more excellent projects every year. And like you do uh, in the Homes uh, Awards and, and the Homes Project, mm-hmm. which is much more advanced than as in ECO, not only because of the years, but also because of the coverage of the topics. Uh, I think that uh, we can, we have a good chemistry and a good uh, way to work together, to cooperate. So all those contests, all those awarding ceremonies at the end of the day are good benchmarks, public benchmarks, professional benchmarks for all our members to know how their achievements are progressive, how their achievements are innovative. Mm. Secondly, uh, we are organizing every year Eco Summit. A lot of people, hundreds of people are joining the summit, exchanging the opinions, but also meeting and exchanging business cards, talking to each other, uh, getting to know the latest trends of the business. So belonging to the to the voice of the international PR community, keeping a good professional and ethical standards, I think it's a big advantage for each company or national association. Mm. Well, Max, thanks so much, not just for taking part in this podcast, but frankly for all the work you do uh, on behalf of the global PR community. Uh, I'm aware that you do most of this for... uh, for no payment at all, but it's, it's no, no payment, very, impo- very important work. Um, and I hope to see you soon. And indeed, I mean, it's good news that, that of course, the Holmes Report is uh, is working closely with ECO now in terms of, uh, of our own global events calendar. I would like to thank you personally and also to my good friend Paul Holmes for the excellent cooperation, for what you are doing for the PR community, because you are amazing innovators of the event management 
and also networking between the communities. So without you guys, maybe without us as well, but without you, the public relations business in the world would be completely different. Well, Max, you're, you're too kind, but thank you very much. Uh, I hope to see you soon. I'm sure I will. Thank you for uh, taking part in, the, in our little chat today, and we'll have you back on the Echo Chamber soon. Thank you. Thank you, Arun. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers.